Hey everybody, welcome to the JU Israel Teachers Lounge, where we keep you connected to what's going on in Israel. Hopefully give you a little insight into current events and all kinds of good stuff like that, maybe sometimes even some bigger ideas, but we're stuck lately, really pretty much dealing with current events. Uh, I'm Michael Unterberg, I'm glad I remembered to say my own name, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman, Tech Al, as sometimes he's called because of his amazing... Uh, IT abilities. Is that fair to say, Alan? I think that's fair. I think I proved it this morning. Figuring out Google Hangouts all by myself. That was that was very cool. That was very cool. The 21st century is glad to have you. Welcome, <laughs> welcome. Uh, well, we've actually had a request to deal with uh, Secretary of State Kerry's remarks. I, for some reason, as soon as he keeps, as as soon as it happened, in my head, I keep hearing my bubby say. Ichkenisht, I just can't. Like, or I guess the Israeli version would be Nimaslikvar, like Daikvar Nimasli. I just can't. I, don't think, I think I don't even think Israelis are not even relating on that even level. As uh, David Horowitz pointed out in his uh, in his um, uh, op-ed last night, Israeli news stations like after you know half an hour into the speech or even less just clicked off of it because nobody was watching it because nobody really cares. Well, who in the world? Who in the world is watching or listening or paying attention? Look, I think I was the only one. Look, if you, <laughs> if, you, if you agree with U.S. strategy against you know, continuing settlements, okay, so you agreed. If you, if you disagreed, then you disagreed. As a strategy, we understand the American strategy, and it, and it is across various administrations and it's it seems to be more or less in both parties whatever's coming in the Trump administration we don't know so as a strategy it said i don't i don't think anything new has happened as tactics the un staying you know staying out of the abstaining from the un vote and Kerry giving this speech as tactics what are you doing it's utterly that's ineffectual so that that's the question like what are they doing mike what the, so tactically, you're saying it's ineffectual. Can you explain that a little bit more? What you mean, the difference between strategy and tactic and why this tactically is bad? Well, a strategy is sort of your long-term goal and how you want to get there. It's, it's your big picture of, I know what my end looks like. I know how, that I want to get there. So if, if their strategy is to have two states side by side, a Palestinian Arab state and an Israeli Jewish state, then I understand that settlements and and their continued growth make that uh, end game challenging. Okay, so strategically, you want to work towards at least limiting the growth of settlements, at least in the areas that would one day be, you know, theoretically a, a Palestinian state. So the strategy I understand. By tactics, I mean specific, discrete activities. Which should be designed to uh, achieve your strategic goals. So in this case, it would be Kerry giving a speech as a tactic. The strategy would be working towards a two-state solution. I don't see how this tactic works towards that strategic goal. So that that's what I'm that's what I'm saying. And and the drama that has uh, that has gone with it because this is like a crazy drama i think that's been in the is in the american newspapers let alone it, actually i think it's less in the israeli newspapers than the american newspapers yeah. even well i can't believe how much it's in the american news 
it's like crazy, no? I don't know. Are they like desperate for a news story because Trump's tweets have become boring? I, I don't know. No, I think it's. Uh, I think actually this entire thing plays into short-term political goals of everybody involved. Yeah, that's what I decided. It's not about the tactics, like you're saying, really about furthering the peace or anything. It's involved everybody's sorts of short-term political goals. So on the American side, you know, it it moves away from all their failed Middle East peace strategy, and let's just focus on Israel and Palestinians again. Let's not focus on everything else going on in the Middle East. Um, I mean, nobody's even talking about Yemen or Libya or those, you know, complete things, let alone Syria is like, uh, you know, it's passe to talk about too much. Let alone a Palestinian administration right. that hasn't held elect- elections in a decade and, su- you know, kills reporters and suppresses right. political dissidents. And, right. Know. So let's just in our last few weeks of administration, let's refocus the problem. Let everybody talk about the Israeli Palest- the, the, the Israeli settlements again. And. And that's what's going to get it going. Netanyahu it plays into his narrative because like, this whole drama. Oh, look, the whole world's out to get us again. We have to stand strong. And by the way, I think it fits nicely into the Hanukkah season for, for Netanyahu. You know, here I am, the little guy fighting the big guy, the, right. you know, the few against the many. And we'll, if we just hold out longer, we'll beat them because we're, you know, we're here and they're the big Rome and the, we'll, we'll or, you know, get rid of them or the Greeks, what have you. Uh and and so it and it also and it it moves attention away from his also you know his claim that oh the world's coming to us and we're making great inroads in Africa then Sunni Middle East and so Russia much for that story, yeah yeah I mean they all voted against they I mean they all voted for this for this Americans just abstained all his great new friends voted for it so like hello wake up and right. why and for the Palestinians this completely plays in because we know that. Abbas is completely powerless and ineffectual, but and he can't do anything. So he goes to the, to his people and I says, Look, "See, see, I I got this. I got the great America to come on our side against the against the settlements, you know, and and the rest of the international world gets again to placate this whole Palestinian thing without actually doing anything to help the plight of the Palestinians, which is actually really bad, <laughs> you know. Yeah, this, this is not this is not going to bring any kind of solution. So it's going to make things worse." So, that's so all why. the great status quo warriors have achieved victory once again. Bidu, the politics, you know, real politics comes into just like, okay, and make a good show. I wish, I wish that because you were being somewhat cynical indicated that you were incorrect. Yes. But I, I don't think that's the case. I do think, yeah, I, I just want to, yeah. I, I think, to, to me, I feel like what Kerry's doing, just think about it tactically for a second. It's yeah. like if your doctor, every time you see your doctor and he says, he just harangues you about, uh, you know, behavior. Let's say a person is a smoker and the doctor just harangues you every visit about smoking. Finally, you say, look, I'm sick of talking about this. I'm going to another doctor. Yeah. And then he says, okay, but I just want to give you another lecture about smoking, which isn't a fair analogy because smoking is objectively bad for you. And the settlement, you know, building is, is, is a debatable issue. But uh, it's just so out of touch and stupid that I, I just can't I just can't analyze it. So in our discussions, you brought up a very interesting um, approach that you why you think Israel's making a tactical mistake in well, all this. Yeah, I, look, I, I always in negotiations what you think you know, and that's, of course, being a settler yourself, you know, you know, you are one of these people that they're talking about. You live Yee-haw! in Yeehaw! 
Yeah, you I'm made sure. Aliyah five years ago, and you yeah. decide to move to Efrat, yeah. you know, a settlement. And it's not like it was a secret that this has been in an international controversy. Yeah, although it is, it is west of the security barrier, which means it, it probably, you know, it probably wouldn't be part of a future Palestinian state. So, and I didn't right. move here because it was a settlement. I, uh, I didn't. It, that didn't uh, deter me. Certainly, it wasn't a, a negative factor, but it wasn't. I wasn't here. I'm here for more family and, you know, reason because it's a good place for my kids and things like that. Then, Which is, the truth be known, that most people who live in these areas, uh, you know, over the green line are living there for family, economic reasons and this yeah. and that much more. I think that's most people. I think when we, when we generally portray populations at large as being politically motivated, I don't, I don't think life really works that way for most people. Okay. So, but still, what, what is your tactic you think is, Israel should be doing in terms of the negotiations? Well, I will say even before I say my, my tactic, I, I think that you and I both are always less interested in analyzing what the other countries are doing that's stupid than in what we are doing that's stupid. And I, and I think that that's useful because, or, or what, maybe that's too harsh. What can we do that's smarter? I can analyze to death the misunderstandings around the world, but if we're not going to get smarter then right. we shouldn't hope that it'll get better in the future. It's sort of what we talked about in the last podcast, but I just wanted to... It was implicit, and I wanted to make it more explicit. I, I was asking you earlier a pretty simple question. Israel always says, and you know, Bibi will get up at the UN and say, we are always ready to come to the table. We are always ready to negotiate with the Palestinians. Come any time. Our door is always open. And there's this sort of assumption that that's a useful tactic in convincing the world that we're right. I would like to argue that we should not do that. That we should say, the door is not open as a way to convince the world that we're right. Because what we should say is, look, we've made major offers. Whether you count... Uh, by the way, Alan, and let, 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 let's go back a step in terms of history. We'll, we'll do future podcasts explaining the Oslo process and analyzing what it was and what went wrong in a different episode. But let us just say that in the official peace negotiations between the, Israeli, the Israelis and the Palestinian leadership, the state of Israel has made full offers for the ability for there to be a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. Is that fair to say? Very fair. I mean, it, uh, President Clinton even uh, references it in his memoirs. So, I mean, it's pretty out there in the open. Dennis Ross talks specifically about it. I mean... There, you know, was from, even, there was even recently, while he was campaigning for his wife, uh, Bill Clinton harangued an audience member who was complaining about the Palestinians' plight. And he said, look, I killed myself to give them a state, and I got them an offer. No, no. That's right. Depends on whether you care what happens to the Palestinians as opposed to the Hamas government and the people with guided missiles. Yes, they were. Yes, they were. No, wait a minute. Yes, they were. And Hamas is really smart. When they decide to rocket Israel, they insinuate themselves in the hospitals, in the schools, in the highly populous areas, and they are smart. So they try. So they, wait, wait, wait. They, so they try to put the Israelis in a position of either not defending themselves or killing innocents. They're good at it. They're smart. They've been doing this a long time. Look, I don't agree. 
I killed myself to give the Palestinians a state. I had a deal they turned down that would have given them all of Gaza, wait, wait, all of Gaza between 96 and 97% of the West Bank, compensating land in Israel, you name it. Then when Mr. Fayyad was the prime minister of the Palestinians on the West Bank, we had all the Muslim countries willing to normalize relations with Israel if they had recognized the Palestinian state. There's a certain degree of narcissism in Clinton taking all the credit for that. But yes. Israel made those offers in good faith. How many would you say, in your analysis, concrete offers did the state of Israel make to the Palestinians for... Uh, certainly, we, well, certainly, two. certainly, we know of two. We know of two very specific ones that had very clear boundaries, and one with even a, a drawn map to it, um, uh, within Abbas's hand by Eid Omar in 2008. So there are two very, very clear. So Eid Barak in 2000 and Eid Omar in 2008. The offers are on the table, right? The Omer offer was more generous to the Palestinians, more controversially generous, pushing at the edges, I would say, of Israeli consensus, if not crossing that line. I would argue Barak's... But I, so why does Israel not simply say, we're done negotiating, we've made our maximal offers, they have not responded to any of them. We're waiting for a response to the offers we made. We're not starting from scratch. This is not an open-ended... We offer negotiation. We've negotiated. We've made our offer. And why is that not the mantra of Israeli politicians and Israel defenders? We've made our offer. They haven't taken it. I don't know what to tell you. When they get their act together, we're here ready, willing, and able. Until they, are, until they get their act together, they, I don't see what else there is to negotiate. We've made our maximal offer. Outside analysts agree it works. It's valid. It's fair. Barack Obama said that the, the fact that Palestinians rejected it in part because of the right of return, that all the refugees should be able to move into, that five million Palestinians should be able to move into Israel and become citizens, is not a valid reason to reject the offer because that's not going to happen. Right. So, so you're saying, you know, we should basically say the ball's in your court. Yeah, ball's in their court. We made the offer. It's, that's objectively true. That's history. And what we do is we complain... How come the world doesn't remember that we made those offers? How come that didn't change the way they look at it? Because people have a short-term memory and they're not paying that close attention and it's not important to them. And if we keep saying, well, we're open to negotiation, then we keep saying we're still at square one. We're communicating to the world. Listen, when I was a kid in the 60s, 70s, 80s, Israel always said, we're open to negotiate with any Arab group that wants to, any Arab nation that wants to negotiate with us. And in, in, you know, in the 70s, in 76, was it, when Sadat said, I'll, I'll take him up on it? Yeah, Seven, no, 78. 78? Yeah, after the Begin election, 77 was right. Begin election. You're so good at Se- this. 78, he said yes, and then 79, they met, and then, right. you know, 80 So was 78, big. when Sadat said, okay, I'll take him, and Begin said, great, you know, we'll roll out the red carpet, literally, and, you, you know, you're welcome to speak at the Knesset. That's what you say to, we, they won't talk to us. We're always open to negotiate to anyone willing to talk to us. The Palestinians have talked to us, and we've talked to them, and we've laid out the parameters. As John Kerry said in his statement, we all know what it would look like. 
So there's nothing, there's nothing much left to negotiate. So we're always open for conversation, but the negotiations are essentially reached their end point. When so, the Palestinians yeah. are serious about a state, let them come back to us. What's wrong with that? So let me ask you something that's uh, uh, perplexing me, which is this John, John Kerry had how long? What was it, like a 10-month or something? Intense, you know, back and forth trying to get the Palestinians. Yeah, no, 10 months. This, 10 months or something like that? So what, what, where did that fall on? One would assume, and obviously diplomatic uh, work like that doesn't make public all of it. You know, years from now, we'll find out the background. But in, it's too close to real time for us to find out. You're, you know, a, a decade from now, we'll probably find out more behind the scenes what actually happened. But one right. would assume that the Palestinians were not forthcoming. Right. But it, right. So why are you coming out swinging at Israel in particular? I don't know. Like, I mean, we have the Jewish state uh, demand by Netanyahu. That was something new that Netanyahu brought to the. He did, and he kind of dropped it. But that was, the, that was his, Netanyahu said, unless Abbas is willing to recognize that Israel is a Jewish state, I don't know that I'm going to be able to sit at the table with him. And Abbas didn't. But what are you sitting at the table for? That, 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 all of that, to me, is around the edges of the fact that we're packaging things wrong. Right, which is? We're not willing to negotiate. We've negotiated. Ehud, but with the, the Oslo was built to build from, to go from, the less complicated issues, like who should have jurisdiction of Jericho, where no Jews live, or Ramallah, where no Jews live, fine, that'll go to Palestinians. And then we'll get to the hardest issues, like Jerusalem and water rights and right of return and all of that. Well, we've made the offers that take all that into account. The, it's, we use the opposite of the Shuk mentality, I think, Barak and Omer. The Shuk mentality is, he asks for $100, I offer him $5, and then we meet somewhere in the middle. Barack and Omer said, we're just going to say $60 because that's the amount we can afford. And we right. can't move any further because that's all we have in our pocket. We've made as much an offer. And, and Bill Clinton and Dennis Ross and the outside analysts looked at it and said, yeah, that is the maximal Israeli offer. And it's sufficient for a Palestinian state. So if the Palestinians don't say yes or no or counter negotiate. By the way, we can say that. We're ready to continue. We're ready to pick up if they have, if they would like to, to, you know, fine tune our offer. But our offer is the two-state solution, and they're not taking it. So, basically, you would boil it down to and framing it differently. And this is, I think, a problem that I think most Israelis. It's very clear to say I mean, the consensus of Israel has with all these issues, like John Kerry's speech last night, why they're just tired of it. And the UN and uh, uh, resolution da, 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 is because, from our perspective, it's just a continual 70 years of Palestinian Arab rejectionism. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and we're not articulating it. We're, we're doing the opposite of that. We're, we, we, we keep legitimizing their dysfunctional kleptocracy, their, their, their corrupt leadership system by saying, come and meet with me, we're ready to negotiate. We should be out there swinging. I don't like the term Hasbara because you know, that's used by Israelis to, here's how you defend Israel, that's called Hasbara. I don't even like the term. To me, it's passive. It's making an excuse. So I have to well, explain, what is, what I have to explain what is, myself. What does the word mean in Hebrew? To explain. 
to explain. And it's passive almost, right? Yeah. It's passive. It's barah. It's not a... Oh, you have a problem with me? Let me explain to you why it isn't such a problem. Right. Why am I doing Hasbara? What do I have to explain? We've made the offers that will resolve the situation. They've rejected the offers that will resolve the situation. What am I explaining? Explain. Have them explain. Please. Somebody call Mahmoud Abbas. John Kerry, I want your speech about what Abbas needs to do. Right. Ah, so that brings another issue out of the speech last night, which is which is that, um, that I saw, you know, it's always like, oh, well, we want him to, to, they want, we want him to denounce terrorism and things like that. And that's what they did last night. Oh, equating terrorism with, with the settlements, which in and of itself is problematic. The Israelis shouldn't build so many homes and the Palestinians shouldn't be killing so many civilians. Uh, But uh, we both know they both have to ease up on those things. Uh, Why is that not a... A equal disgusting morally thing. equivalent. I don't know. No, I'll th- I'll go beyond that because I think that's a, that's the point you were just getting at, which is like what you're just asking them not to do something. What are you asking the Palestinians actually to do? Right, right. You're asking them not to be terrorists. Okay, you know, or not to support terrorism. Right. right? I, I didn't mean to say that all Palestinians are terrorists because not true. Right. right? right. Obviously. Obviously, but we're we're asking them not to support terrorism or incite terrorism. And, and, and then we're like, no, what exactly should the Palestinians be doing? Ask them. Give up on the right of return. Make concessions on, uh, you know, on what territories you're going to take. Stop naming parks and streets for terrorists. Stop paying right. families of terrorists to reward them for terror. Start telling your people that there will not be a right of return. Start right. explaining to your people what the final borders of the Palestinian state would look like in a two-state solution. Start openly communicating about these things and right. change well and change the paradigm change well, the paradigm. they can't because of their internal politics, oh really, right. so when you yell at Bibi for doing things for his internal politics, but you're not complaining to a boss for his that he has to worry about Hamas on his right wing, the Israelis have such a right wing government, but Abbas has to appease hamas it's right. it's 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 kafka esque in its inability to discuss the real world in a fair and honest way. But, but I think that we feed it. We feed it because we start by accepting that narrative and trying to explain our way out of it instead of telling them flat out, you're looking at this wrong. You're just, that's ridiculous. We have nothing to negotiate. We've made our full position. We've made our full offer. It's time for us to say it. And I think that it goes back again to that that tablet piece by uh, what was his name? Matty Friedman. Matty Friedman's tablet piece, which once again, all you know, he claims the whole paradigm is that the Palestinians are passive. That it's all about Israel and Israel has to do 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 do, and the Palestinians are passive. Right. They're passive players in this, and and John Kerry just reinforced that last night. You know that I think, by the way, in my opinion, is the uh, what's that called? The subtle. The subtle disrespect, the subtle racism of low expectations. Uh, yeah, that's a good way of saying it. I think. But uh, what am I going to tell them? They're Arabs. They're not going. to... You know what I mean? Like, uh, are they humans? Are they adults? Do they need work to do to improve their cultural background? I mean, to me, not that I had ever a great deal of respect for John Kerry's understanding of the world, but during <laughs> during while he was, quote unquote, trying to negotiate a ceasefire in Syria, which. He gave that speech where he was like, how am I supposed to negotiate with people who are murdering children? 
what, 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 did you just wake up and notice that? Like, uh, whatever, the guy's on, on the moon. Can we, can we discuss Hanukkah? Uh, sure. You've had enough. You want to turn it positive. The few against the many. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Give it, give it 10 minutes. Let's see what you have to say. Yeah. Let's change topics to Hanukkah. Uh, this will be a potpourri episode. I want to know if, if, if the analysis of Hanukkah's story is the only way to appreciate Hanukkah, as opposed to the actual history. Meaning that the, 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 the ritualistic tradition that goes along with a story that we tell about the, the Pach Shemit, the can of oil and that stuff? What do you mean? I'm, I'm less bothered. Uh, the Pach Shemin issue, the, the, the oil jar issue isn't the issue that's bothering me. I, even, uh, but even when you get to the military issue, you know, how do these few warriors overthrow the mighty Greek empire? Right. Well, it's because they... Well, when you actually look at the actual facts, Judah the Maccabee never stood toe-to-toe with the Greek... Phal- well, he did actually stand, try to stand toe-to-toe with Greek phalanxes and lost every time he did it. He... Yeah. he he was able to, like, like any other small group fighting a large army, you know, how could the Vietnamese have defeated the great American empire? Well, they didn't win any battles, but they won the war because through guerrilla tactics, they made it costly enough for the Americans to have to pull out. And that's what the Americans did. Well, that's what Judah did to the Greeks, eventually. Right. And, and like, for instance, we leave out... Um, when, when after one of those terrible defeats, Judah locked himself and his troops in Jerusalem and, and clo- you know, barred the gates. And the Greek general Lysias started a, 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 to besiege them. And what could have ended up in starvation and disaster was averted because there was a, there was a coup back at home in Antioch, the capital of the Syrian Greek empire. And Lysias could not keep his troops in Jerusalem. So he, he, he sent a message to the Jews in Jerusalem saying, look, we'll remove all the anti-religious laws. We'll give you back your freedom of religion. You just surrender back to the Greek empire and we'll go back to square one and everything will be groovy and cool. And the Jews accepted that. Lysias departed. And then the Greeks dismantled the walls of Jerusalem, <laughs> which the Jews were like, whoa, you can't, you can't, met, you can't break down Jerusalem. And that started the war all over again. They went back to the hills. To me, that's a very important message about, it's a very important Zionist message that Jewish sovereignty is required as a basic necessity for Jewish culture to thrive. That any time you turn over the ability to control the destiny of the Jews to another power, you're playing with fire. That doesn't mean you can't have allies. That doesn't, doesn't mean you shouldn't cooperate. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be part of the community of nations. But you have to be part of the community of nations as, as a, standing on your own two feet, not as a subject to an empire. But that doesn't get discussed on Hanukkah because it's a level of detail in the story. People don't read First Maccabees, which is considered a, probably a pretty reliable account of the actual events. So, uh, why, so what, what do you think people are not getting when they don't understand well, the story this way? You know yeah, what I mean? Like, yeah. 
Well, you know, for instance, I don't think most Jews think about that, 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 that sovereignty is an, uh, this is the birth of Jewish sovereignty in, in the Second Temple period. And I don't think people attach that really to the story. I think people think, well, the message of Hanukkah is you just stick to your principles, you'll win. But Judah died in battle, sticking to his principles. All five, none of them died with their boots, you know, died in bed. They all died in battle. And but eventually their kingdom unraveled in disastrous right. self-destruction and civil war. So I, I would argue that for kids, you, you know, you want these simple narratives. But as you become an adult, I think you want to learn the lessons of history in a more complex way. I guess I'm not giving you anything really to argue with. I, no, it's not to argue. I'm just saying, like, that's not how – I'm not so sure that's how people build their national – uh, myths, let's say. I don't mean myths as uh, things that don't happen, but you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. That, 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 like, a myth because, isn't, isn't a false thing. It's, it, it's your big, by myth you mean the big picture, the big picture narrative that describes. America yeah. was a country conceived in liberty to, to, to be, well, yeah, it was also oh. a bunch of guys who didn't want to pay taxes, but that's right. not the way we, but telling the story in a particular way shapes the way that culture will progress. But even that, it was also whenever we learned it, right? Oh, why did they throw the tea into the Boston Harbor? You know, how do we learn it? Um, because there's taxation without representation. Right. Okay. That who? How many people have actually moved on beyond that? And they're understanding. Maybe now with Hamilton is the play, so there's a, a you know it's been able to tell a deeper story. I don't know, but I haven't seen it. But you know, what I'm saying like you're I'm saying you about, you agree with me. You just don't see that most people are going to start looking at history in a more complex way i'm saying that i think if you want to build yeah like a, if you're building your people you're building your nation you want to keep the points clear concise and people can absorb you know in, in bullet points almost <laughs> and that's a problem i agree that's a problem right but i think that that like in other words, American independence. How many people know about the different wars and the battles and, you know? Well, that's a very messy, complicated... Right, yeah. you're saying most people don't relate to history. They relate to stories. There's a particular nerd class that relates to history very deeply. And like they Joe always... Dyer, that's our class. Oh, yeah. Dyer. Oh, yeah. Sure. But we're, we're super nerds. But, but, um, and that's fine. But I, I, you shouldn't try to even think of changing that because it's just not going to. Yeah, you're gonna lose it. So I say, I say, fight, fight it, fight at the edges, and whatever achievements you make are are worthwhile achievements. Fight against the oversimplification of history. Not that there's untruth in the in the general narrative. There's truth there, but there's also real gold in them. Thar hills of going into the deeper historical stories and analyzing it, and I think that should be encouraged, even though. You'll never, you know, you're, I, I, I have to agree with what you're saying that overall that's not the way people relate to history. Okay. But, look, I would argue that something, I, I, what, what's his I name? Think, Dan, uh, what's uh, uh, Hardcore History? Dan. Uh, Arlen. Yeah, it's a very popular podcast. In other words, there is, people do have a nerdy streak of wanting to know history and why it's relevant and what it says <laughs> to us. And I think, I think that's worth fanning those flames. Let your let your freak flag fly. Be be as nerdy, 
as you're going to be. Well, actually, I want to because I think there's actually a deeper point that we're getting at here, which actually does correspond to the teachers' lounge. It's like, how as teachers of history do we teach history? Teachers of history who have a clear political agenda and a belief in Zionism and Israel. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. How do we teach history so that we that it's inspiring, but yet it's also intellectually honest and nuanced? I hate that word because it's so overused now, but that's yeah. what we're trying to say. And, and Dan Carlin does – that's what's so amazing about his podcast is that he's able to actually delve into depth while still retaining the story. Right. It's a storyteller that, can, that understands how to balance depth with, with um, you know, interest. I don't know. <laughs> I, no, but I think you're right. I, think, I don't know why this has become an analysis of Dan Carlin, but I think he's, he's turning history into a story. He's taking the details – and showing how that's a fascinating story. Everybody loves good stories. Right. And I think that we miss an opportunity when we don't tell the actual history of Hanukkah as a story and let, you know, and, 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 and really try. We, I think we, we walk around unaware of how much we know about our antiquity. And, and, so, and, and to back up your point. I have a, a, a story of story to back up your point. When I was teaching a, a try, Tichon Ramah Yushalayim, the Ramah High School, I was a teacher there. And we were out with, around Hanukkah, when it wasn't Hanukkah time, but we were doing the Hanukkah story because we do the history of it. So I, we went to a site in Israel, Imaus, which was one of the big battles during that time. And I was Is that how you pronounce it? I think so. But I have no idea how to pronounce it because I've only read it. I always say Emmaus. Me too. Yeah, I think it's Imaus, and I think, but again, who knows. Oh. But it's near Modi'in, yeah. and we're sitting there, and I'm telling you the story that they, we're actually talking about a series of battles that happen over years. And these, you know, 11th grade uh, Jewish high school students who, you know, they came to a semester in Israel, so they connected enough. They were blown away. Right. Like, there was actually, like, what are you talking about? It was just like, you know, they went to the temple. They, it was like the this end. moment for them, like, that it's actually a much deeper, longer story. Oh, cleaning the temple is is the is early in the war. Yeah, things yeah. go downhill and uphill and downhill and uphill. It's a roller coaster. So, so I think that depth brought them an understanding, like you're saying, of of a connection to a deeper story, a deeper thing that's going on, a deeper connection. I, I don't. All so right. Well, I, maybe we have to make a parallel podcast where we we go through the stories of Jewish history as narr- you know, as uh, yeah. Uh, more work. Okay. All right. Well, it's not really work. It's really more fun than work, at least this stuff. Yeah. Well, the preparation is the work part. Yeah. Also, like if you have to do grades or whatever. The pont- yeah, pontification yeah. is the fun part. Yeah. Or uh, to go back to my bubby, ploppling, which may be actually what we're doing. <laughs> um, so I don't think this qualifies as a mini episode if we wrap it around the half hour point. Yeah. But for us, I think it's it's probably less hot air than usual, which is a good thing. Uh, so, wishing everybody the happiest of Hanukkahs and Chodesh Tov, and may the secular New Year bring us uh, good, happy news, fewer dead celebrities, and uh, a time of optimism and success around the world. I prefer Gregorian over secular. But, uh, wow, you're such a stickler. You and your, <laughs> can't you just go with the flow of how people understand the world and uh, with all your historical detail? Exactly. 
All right, dude. Happy Hanukkah to you and your family. Happy Hanukkah, Hanukkah, Sameach. Nice. Bye, all.